Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is John Cruth. He's the author of several music books, and today we're going to talk about A Friend of the Devil, the glorification of the outlaw in song from Robin Hood to rap. Welcome, John. Hey, how are you? I'm good, and you? Good, considering. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's talk about this book. I found it really interesting on a number of levels, and it's, you know, a deep dive into, you know, music's fascination of the outlaw in music it entails, and you know, it spreads not only worldwide, but generationally through folk music and country and Western rock and roll, reggae and rap, of course. And we'll go through some of those genres and talk about specific artists and songs. But uh, you wrote a book, a biography, perhaps a definitive biography of Towns Van Zant. He is the author of what might be a definitive outlaw tale. Can you tell us what your take is on that song and its story? When I was interviewing people for the book, To Lives to Fly was the name of the book, and it came out in 2007. The uh, conversation often revolved around Poncho and Lefty, the enigma of Poncho and Lefty, and how it can never be answered, and how it was just one of the most beautiful anthems of an outlaw of life in America, And so I had these interviews all piled up, well over 50, and inevitably the conversation turned to a longer, more in-depth conversation about Poncho and Lefty. And I kept thinking, you know, this could be a really interesting kind of uh, essay or maybe a book or an article or something. And uh, so... I started thinking about this. Uh, John Prine's Illegal Smile, Richard Thompson's 1952 uh, Vincent Black Lightning, Henry, New Riders of the Purple Sage, A Friend of the Devil. The list just started to explode. It was just this ongoing thing that happened at that point. But you have another very interesting story about the reach of that song. Uh, Can you tell us that story? And that's about Towns Van Zandt, as a matter of fact. Well, you know, Towns was just one of the greatest storytellers on the planet. If you wanted to know if it was true or embellished, that was another enigma, uh, unanswerable. You, You didn't get anywhere by asking him, is that true? Did that really happen? There's the version where... He talks about he's driving through this small town in Texas, and he's pulled over by two cops. So they get him in the back of the patrol car. They start with the 20 questions. So one was a blue-eyed Aryan guy with a short blonde crew cut and blue eyes, and, and the other was a Mexican, and Towns said that, oh yeah, Towns said he felt like he was a guest star on an episode of Chips. And they say, what is it that you do for a living? And the cops begin to grill him. And he says, I'm a traveling folk singer and songwriter. And uh, knowing that that was like tantamount to a guilty plea. So take it as best shot Van Zandt asks him if they're familiar with the song Poncho and Lefty. Yeah, I wrote that song, you know, for, and I gave it to Willie, he tells him. And they look at him like, yeah, right. So he starts to sing, living on a road, my friends, going to keep you free and clean. And 
the two cops begin a grin and they turn around and they have another conference in the front seat. And meanwhile, Towns is sitting there waiting quietly, trying to be as nice as possible, not even saying a word, not trying to smell bad. A moment later, the Aryan guy announces that the speeding charge has been dropped, but reminded Towns to file for the address change as soon as he gets back to Austin. We're going to have to give you and get you on the inspection sticker, though, because we already wrote that up, the cop says, and but it'll only be like five bucks. So Towns is grateful. He thanks the cops for letting them go. And he knows the code of the road. The code of the road being that once the cop lets you go, that's it. You keep your mouth shut and you get out of there before you could cause any more trouble. But Towns just couldn't leave well enough alone. He had to know why they dropped the charges. You know, that's our radio code, Poncho and Lefty. We use that as a radio code. So Towns is like, well, thanks guys. That sure is nice. He starts to walk away. But just before he reaches his car, curiosity gets the best of him. And knowing that he's playing with fire, Towns turns around and asks him, well, which one of y'all is Poncho? The Mexican points to the Aryan and he says, he is. The song endures because it's an enigma. It can't be answered. Van Zant knew What's left unsaid often haunts us most. He never divulges whether Pancho and Lefty were friends or a pair of desperados bound together by circumstance or an ill-fated scheme. Their relationship is purposely vague. The tale clearly implies betrayal and the song forever remains an enigma, a great American enigma, which is essential to its enduring beauty. Now, that kind of enigma you can only find in like, you know, Billy Joe McAllister throwing the package off the Tallahatchie Bridge. You're never gonna know what it was really about. And that kind of mystery is really at the source and its beauty. Well said. It also allows you to go back and listen to the song a billion times by anybody who cuts it, and you still have no clue. And on the other side of the coin, maybe, another very unique personality who wrote a song that I heard early on that, that kind of blew my mind is Warren Zevon and Rollin' the Headless Thompson Gunner. Oh, man. What, what a song. Zevon's Rollin' the Headless Thompson Gunner, you got to start with Washington Irving's classic of American folklore, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which, by the way, originated in a German folktale about a nameless Hessian mercenary whose head was blown clean off by cannon fire during the Revolutionary War. Following the tragedy, the apparition mounts a mad black stallion every night to gallop through the gloomy forest and haunt the cantankerous old schoolmaster Ichabod Crane in the tiny village of Mount Pleasant, New York. And by 1865, the headless horseman moves to Texas, where it becomes a western. And he haunts the wide open prairies of the Lone Star State. Next, it's translated into French by a young Vladimir Nabokov. Before Tim Burton directs The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1999 and turns Ichabod Crane into a uh, 
an eccentric forensic specialist played by a Johnny Depp. It had been a silent film starring Will Rogers in the 1920s, and then it was remade again as The Adventures of Ichabod Crane, animated by Disney. Did you see it? Do yep. you remember it? Yep. And I had the record. I loved the movie. It was narrated by Bing Crosby. And it's amazing when you see the Headless Horseman's head you know it's a it's a jack-o-lantern and it explodes on the screen like like a molotov cocktail so by 1972 the legendary horseman is then adapted for the russian cinema and renamed the headless rider but the most original and the best retelling of all of course of irving's headless hessian comes from warren zevon who transformed the story into the fabulously macabre Rolling the headless Thompson Gunner with the sort of gratuitous violence that Zevon kind of opened the door for that kind of violence in songs that, you know, excitable boy, holy shit. <laughs> Zevon wrote Roland in 78, creating a horrifying hero, which embodied all the guilt and the self-loathing that plagued America in the wake of the Vietnam War and Watergate. Zivon's Roland was an unstoppable supernatural killing machine. After setting out to join the bloody fray in Biafra, he arouses the suspicion of the CIA, who becomes alarmed by his efficiency and his enthusiasm on the battlefield. They designate him a loose cannon and coerce Roland's friend Van Owen to assassinate him. And although his skull is blown to bits, the headless mercenary comes back to life, inexplicably avenging his killer by mowing him down with a Tommy gun before wandering off into the night. <laughs> the last verse has this bizarre twist when Zevon sings about Patty Hearst, the, the multimillionaire's daughter who, after being kidnapped by a group of guerrillas known as the Symbionese Liberation Army, joins her captors and helps to hold up a bank. And Zevon's demented tale ends with Tanya, as Hearst became known, uh, hearing the echo of Roland Thompson's machine gun thundering in her brain like any true American heiress. Patty Hearst heard the burst of Roland's Thompson gun. Bought it. <laughs> it's a great song. That's a great telling of the tale. And, you know, it's funny because you do mention in the book, you know, at this point, Zivon's hanging around with James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and the Eagles. The Avocado right. Mafia. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And he was nothing like them. He was much more punk rock, really. It, it was alarming. I mean, I don't know if you remember the first time you heard Excitable Boy, but I was galvanized. I was just like, it was gripping. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. You have a chapter called Post Office Pinups, and that shifts to some very violent real-life people. Billy the Kid is incredibly represented throughout song. And what are your, some of your favorites that feature him? I mean, Billy the Kid was a desperate guy that committed violent acts. And yet we continue to celebrate him in song and print and movies to this day. But Billy the Kid, as a song, was first recorded in 1927 by the Texas singer-songwriter, uh, harmonica player Vernon Dalhart, and later adapted by Ry Cooter, who turned it into a funky strut on the mandolin for his 1972 Into the Purple Valley, which really inspired me to pick up the instrument. Well, you know, there was also Bob Dylan's Billy, which he wrote for the 1974 soundtrack to Sam Peckinpah's bloody Western Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, Dylan's Billy the Kid had this loping Tex-Mex kind of feel rhythm, and Bob was very sympathetic, recounting the gunslinger's plight. He sings to him like a friend, Billy, they don't want you to be so free. And Dylan appears in the film as this strange character named Alias and, and tells the kid to sleep with one eye open. You look back and you realize that by the end of the 19th century, misadventures of American miscreants like Billy the Kid, Al Capone, and John Dillinger all became the daily front page news. Uh, you know, and this is really far from high-minded philanthropists like uh, Robin Hood. The thing that's really interesting about Woody Guthrie, by the way, I want to toss this in there, is that he knew that Pretty Boy Floyd was far from any kind of like saintly philanthropist. And yet he wrote that song about him, which everybody continued to sing. It was really remarkable going back and finding out about Pretty Boy Floyd after playing that song, hearing the birds sing it, hearing Woody Guthrie sing it, hearing Dylan singing it, and find out he was nothing like that character. You also mentioned a version by Charlie Daniels, which I was completely unfamiliar with until I went back and listened to it. I had to do a lot of research myself. I was like, oh, well, who else did this song, you know? And uh, uh, I guess two years after Dylan's version of uh, Billy the Kid, Charlie Daniels recorded his own. Uh, it was up-tempo. It was a country rocker from his 1976 album, High Lonesome, and it featured a crunchy uh, Les Paul guitar riff and a pair of wailing fiddles. And then Daniel's romanticized version, Sheriff Pat Garrett 
has the kid's name written on every bullet in his gun. Of course he does. <laughs> I try to be a nice guy as much as I can. I, I, you know, I'm not one of these people that gets off on cutting other people down, but Billy Joel's version, Billy Joel's version of Billy the Kid is so insipid and it's so <laughs> pathetic that I actually say something like in the book that if like, if the kid had been alive to hear Billy Joel's version of his life, his gun would have, would have killed 22 instead of 21. <laughs> it's so terrible. The outlaw ballad it has plenty of room for kitsch. Right. Well, Jesse James is another big one, and there's a yeah. ton of songs starting with Woody Guthrie. But I need to talk about a different take <laughs> on the outlaw. And in all oh, in no. all fairness, it, it's it's more of a metaphor than an accounting of the man. So you have to tell us about shares, just like Jesse James. I guess I do. <laughs> Uh, it was the song uh, "Just Like Jesse James" was written by Desmond Child and Diane Warren. It was a hit for Cher in 1989, and it's the ultimate kitsch outlaw anthem. The music builds to a dramatic crescendo, and the lyric, which is composed from one cliche after the next, portrays a duel between Cher and her outlaw lover, a small town dude with a big city attitude. She's threatening to take him down, dead or alive, and she taunts her bad beau with a series of tacky innuendos like, come on, baby, show me what that loaded gun is for. And the politically incorrect uh, line my heart is crying Indian and I'm begging for more. Uh, the song's authors don't stop there. They shamelessly rip off the Rolling Stones with the familiar line, a team of wild horses can drag your heart away. <laughs> You're gonna go down in flames, Cher warns her love slinger, but the flames that she's singing about really has nothing to do with the notorious outlaw. Uh, but it does manage to rhyme with the song's title, Just Like Jesse James. And that's important. We're speaking with John Cruth. He's the author of a fascinating book called A Friend of the Devil, The Glorification of the Outlaw in Song from Robin Hood to Rap. So gangsters and villains and bad guys, and they're evergreen, right? And And one place... They would be really celebrated, in my opinion, very successfully as a fan of the genre, um, would be in reggae music. And one of my favorite and certainly a very influential tale is Perry Henzel's telling of Regan in the film The Harder They Come. I mean, The Harder They Come, do I ever remember going to the movies in Boston, by the way, uh, in the 70s to see that? It was really, uh, it was a total game changer. When the Harder They Come uh, was released in 1972, it was really groundbreaking stuff. And it made people in America and England aware of a whole nother thing, a whole nother scene that was happening in Jamaica. Uh, there's been lots of Jamaican outlaws about the battle that marijuana smokers and growers have fought with authorities is, uh, that goes way back, probably even before Rastafarian culture. Uh, but, you know, Rastafaris have stood in defiance of their country's laws for years. Um, 
There's Johnny Too Bad, recorded by the Slickers and later popularized by Taj Mahal on his 1974 album, Mo Roots. And of course, I Shot the Sheriff, the centerpiece of the Whalers' second album, Burning, in 1973, which uh, Bob Marley's protagonist pleads self-defense. I shot the sheriff, but I didn't shoot no deputy. When Sheriff Tom Brown takes aim at him, the narrator shoots and shoots first in self-defense, and he's claiming that his reflexes got the better of him. His crime, of course, was growing weed, the sacred herb, sacred to all Rastafaris. Every time I plant the seed, he said, kill it before it grows. Eric Clapton's famous cover from his album, 461 Ocean Boulevard, soars to number one in September of 1974 and instantly popularizes reggae worldwide. But man, it's weak tea compared to the original. And as Taj Mahal likes to say, everybody knows what butter is, while margarine is something they came up with later. So most folks don't know that Jimmy Cliff, who starred in the film, that his personal story is very similar to Ivan O. Martin, the hero of The Harder They Come. The character is actually based on Vincent Ivanhoe Martin, a real outlaw from Kingston, also known as Regan. As a teenager, Cliff leaves his home in the countryside and moves to the slum of Shantytown in Kingston. His song, Many Rivers to Cross, inspired uh, the director, Perry Hensel, to offer Jimmy the starring role. He's young and naive, fresh from the country. Ivan comes to Kingston and quickly loses everything he's got. He turns to his mother, who offers no help, and soon he finds himself living rough, hustling in the ghetto known as Shantytown. Just exactly how close Ivan's story is to Regan, I don't remember. You're going to have to read the book. <laughs> but he soon finds work in the ganja trade, running spliffs to local bars, and he re after he refuses to pay off protectors, they rat him out and the police hunt him down. Things quickly turn from bad to worse. Ivan runs reckless with a pistol and he kills anyone who crosses him. Then he heads to the rock for rescue, but as we know in Johnny Too Bad, there is no rock. Cliff's song, You Can Get It If You Really Want, plays as the entire Jamaican army surrounds Ivan, and in a blinding round of gunfire, they create a new hero and martyr for the times. The scene was obviously inspired by the climax to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And those films were really popular in Jamaica, too. You know, you read about the history of that and the, the Westerns. Oh, and, yeah, sure. Especially Westerns. The funny thing is, and the thing that we don't really realize, because, of course, like in America, we have such a we have such a small view of things. Usually it's it's like what people don't think about or what they don't realize is that the Whalers and Bob Marley aren't even in that movie. <laughs> That movie is what put reggae on the map and the whalers weren't even in the film. Yeah. You mentioned that the climax of that movie may pay a debt to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Sure. And uh, Bonnie and Clyde are also unlikely icons. And we have to fast forward a little bit. That was a 1967 film. So in 1999, Brooklyn hip-hopper Foxy Brown provides a makeover with Bonnie and Clyde Part 2, and it features Jay-Z. And 
very interestingly, perhaps Brown took the character a little too personally. So uh, Foxy Brown was a Brooklyn hip hopper, as we know. In 1999, uh, she recorded Bonnie and Clyde Part Two, uh, which uh, <laughs> boasted of all the guns and coke and the shitload of cash that just comes with the glorious gangsta lifestyle. Uh, over a bludgeoning beat and a brass knuckle punchy horn section, Jay-Z says, will you die for your nigga? And she replies, I'll die for you. And like, it's nothing more than just going to the corner store for a pack of cigarettes and a six pack of beer. I mean, that's the thing that really struck me about that. It's just very, as a matter of fact, it just comes with the territory. Deep as the romantic bond is presented, the song is filled with hopelessness and impending death. My favorite thing about the song is at the end of the song, Foxy Brown just says very coolly as it fades, real life. And you don't doubt her for a minute that she knows what she's talking about, but the real life adventures of Foxy Brown were really a series of tangles with the law. In January 1997, uh, there's an altercation in Raleigh, North Carolina at a hotel when she spits on a maid. A warrant is served for her arrest, but Brown skips town before the cops arrive. Four months later, she returns to face charges and was handed a one-month suspended sentence. But she has to complete 80 hours of community service. Seven years later, in 2004, she assaults a pair of manicurists in Manhattan after refusing to pay a $20 bill. As part of her probation, she has to enroll in anger management class. Imagine that. Uh, service people were not the only target of Brown's raging ego. Miami rapper Jackie O claimed that Brown disrupted her recording session one night, calling her a new rapper hoe and uh, physically assaulted her after she refused to bow down to her. And in 2007, she pled guilty after attacking a clerk at a beauty shop. She then hit her neighbor with her Blackberry. And finally, here it comes, folks, to add insult to injury, pulls down her jeans and moons the poor woman. <laughs> And uh, having violated the prior probation after the nail salon brawl, Brown was then sentenced to do jail time in September. One month later, they lock her up in solitary for 30 days following an altercation with a fellow inmate and mouthing off to a guard. By April 2008, she's free once again and back out on the street, but I'm sure it didn't end then. As George Thorogood might say, Bad to the bone. Wow. Well, that is quite the tale. And it's interesting somehow how these singers take on the roles that they sing about. You know, we saw it a little bit. Oh, yeah, in, sure. Um, in some of the reggae music, you know, there's the uh, Dillinger and, you know, lots of, of uh, DJs named after those guys. Here we see Foxy Brown becoming, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, or at least Bonnie. One of the things that was so wonderful about doing this book and doing any book really is how much I get to learn. 
I don't write a book because I'm an expert on something. I'm writing a book because I want to learn about it. And hopefully I learned enough about something that is interesting for you and interesting for the readers and all of that. I learned a ton. It's a, it's a fascinating book. And, you know, you mentioned this earlier, and since you, you talked about it, I wanted to ask you, you refer to Richard Thompson's 1952 Vincent Black Lightning as, quote, one of the greatest outlaw songs, if not the most romantic. It takes a lot for me to to really choke up when somebody's singing a song, you know? I mean, maybe Dylan's done it to me live, uh, certainly Leonard Cohen, but if you've ever seen Richard live, and he's played Vincent Black Lightning so many times, but it never seems like he's just going through the motion. Uh, to me, I think that it's the kind of blind faith in the face of doom that makes 1952 Vincent Black Lightning one of the greatest outlaw songs ever written. And perhaps the most romantic. It's really hard not to cry when young James, the song's hero, is brought in for armed robbery. He lays there after a shotgun blows a hole in his chest. He's breathing his last gasp. He's hallucinating Blakeian visions of angels in leather and chrome swooping down to carry him home. Hallelujah, you know, I mean, uh, they're coming to carry him home. He's handing his sweetheart Red Molly. Red hair and black leather, my favorite color scheme. Oh, my God. <laughs> he hands her the keys to his fine motorbike, and then he gives up the ghost. I mean, it's just, it's honestly one of my favorite songs on the planet. I went back and listened to it, I have to admit, after reading this and, and did see it in quite oh, a different good. light. And, you know, I know Richard Thompson's work, you know, obviously through Icodisc, uh, who re-released all that Hannibal work. I never looked at it in that context. And what you just said is perfect. So, Oh, thank you. If, if all you folks are out there are looking for something to do when you read this book, it, keep your Spotify or whatever you listen to on your lap because it's a ton of fun to go back for. I wanted to add... Uh, what Richard said about the song, if that's okay, and Absolutely. you can you can use it or not, you know. But interviewing Richard Thompson was really a blast for me, and I've done hundreds of and hundreds of interviews over the years for my books and magazine articles. Um, Richard said, "There's a long tradition in British folk music of outlaw songs that go all the way back to Robin Hood. Some of those ballads are very, very long and up to 40 to 50 verses and are basically the exploits of an outcast, someone who's been cast out of society and survives on the fringes. In Robin Hood's case, robbing the rich and giving to the poor. Uh, this is a common theme through the ages. Vincent Black Lightning is a song that's built around an object, which is a really important point. It's built around an object. It's built around the motorcycle, which is the mythical core that the song and the characters revolve around. James is a kind of likable character, as most criminals in songs are, <laughs> unless they are outright murderers. They're champion. They're characters which... Uh, one sympathizes with. James is desperate, but in spite of all of it, he winds up sympathetic. You know, Richard points out a really good thing here. He says, we don't get to interview the families of the people he killed, right? 
which is really an important thing. I mean, this still goes on, I think, all the time in the news to this day. So he says the idea of the motorcycle was the beginning of this song. He was trying to find something that was specifically British, that was both romantic and mythological. The Vincent Black Lightning is a rare motorcycle. It's a much desired object, very beautiful, black, sexy. He said that he thought it would be an interesting theme to build a song around. Uh, the Vincent Black Lightning is like an old English folk song about the hero and his horse. But in this case, Thompson replaces it the horse with a fine motorbike. The song packs tremendous emotional punch. Young James' death is very moving, very romantic. Richard says, I was just writing the song. I wasn't thinking of any of that stuff. All the stuff that I'm going on about. He says, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff, which I thought, wow, am I being like a pain in the neck here or something? You know, he says when he writes, it's semi-conscious uh, that he usually has an idea of what he wants to do at the beginning. Songwriting can surprise you, he says. You're basically trying to pull the stuff out. Then you edit it a bit. The whole process is instinctive. At least it is for him. He says, if I like a song, I don't always go into the reasons why. I love that. Being a songwriter myself, I can totally understand that. I can't tell you where half the stuff that I've written comes from. And then it's like, and then I'm on the other side of it, asking him. And he said that his instincts just tell him whether he should persevere with it or not. That's pretty humble. Yeah, it was amazing. And I, I have to admit, I Googled the motorcycle on images to see what one of those things looked like. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Of course. Um, um, well, listen, I, I, it's a fascinating conversation. We could go on forever, um, but I want people to read your book because there's so much more. Well, you guys get to edit it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd be not doing my deed if I didn't mention one of my favorite bands, and they give uh, the name of your book, A Friend of the Devil, in The Grateful Dead. And they have quite the catalog of, you know, on the lamb heroes and outsiders, you know, from sure. Loser or uh, a cover of John Phillips, Me and My Uncle. And, and of course, sure. the book, the, the song that gives your book its title. I just wondered if you could say a few words on, on their kind of take on those songs and, and if you have a favorite amongst their work. Well, sure. I mean, you know, let's, let's just talk about A Friend of the Devil because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's Hunter, it's Robert Hunter at some of his finest lyric writing. Uh, I mean, Robert Hunter is truly an American treasure. The music is a lighthearted bluegrass romp. And it first appears, as most of us remember or know, on Grateful Dead's American Beauty in 1970. Uh, that said, what exactly is the singer's crime? It's hard to say. It starts off with him running from Reno. He's on the run. He's got 20 hound dogs on his trail. By the second verse, we start to find out he's a polygamist. Uh, he's got a wife in Chino and another stashed away in Cherokee. Okay, he's a rather likable fellow probably due to Jerry Garcia's nasal delivery. Um, he's clearly a deadbeat dad, yet at the same time, he appeals to our sense of sympathy. We'd like to lend him a hand and 
wouldn't think twice about hiding him up in the attic for a few nights until the heat blows over, but it's hard to take this guy's deal with the devil seriously, I think. Um, although he bemoans his fate of having to sleep in cold, lonely caves and missing <laughs> his darling Anne-Marie, along with the threat of having to spend the rest of his days behind bars, this is far far from the haunted, tortured fugitive of Robert Johnson's hellhound on my trail, <laughs> who sold his soul to Satan on a full moon night at a Mississippi crossroads in order to become the greatest guitar player of his day. You're saying a friend of the devil is basically a snowflake? Well, <laughs> it's lightweight compared to that. I love this song. Don't get me wrong. I always feel as a writer, I have to be objective. I can't necessarily just go on about something because I love it as much as Richard Thompson's. Uh... <laughs> so um, I just wanted to say he's living with this nagging feeling that his days are numbered. So I asked David Grisman. Now, remember, I'm a mandolin player. A very good one, too. David Grisman, thank you, uh, about the song. And he says... He was just trying to get his part right. And uh, the, though he's played it plenty of times with Jerry, he never paid any attention to the words. Which, uh, so by the mid seventies, this is really important. I think the dead transform the tune into that spookier version, the minor version, which becomes a dirge. It's slower, it's spookier, it's in a minor key. And as John Prine used to say, anytime you play a, a, a song in, in a minor key in folk music, somebody dies. So, it's in a minor key, which loaned the song, I think, much needed credibility to the protagonist, making his Faustian bargain uh, an impending doom all the more real. Well, it's funny because earlier in our conversation, you mentioned, you know, perhaps one of the marks of a great song is that you could change the key or change the time and still have a great song. Absolutely. So, um, well, listen, uh, we've been speaking with John Cruth, and he wrote a book called A Friend of the Devil, The Glorification of the Outlaw in Song from Robin Hood to Rap. It's got a ton of more great tales. So, you know, I encourage you all to go pick it up and, you know, discover it. But I want to end on a, a really wonderful quote that kind of sums your book up, but certainly kind of our conversation Correct. here from, from yeah. Danny O'Keefe, who wrote a great song called Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. Can you give... Oh, his albums, by the way, they are gems waiting to be discovered. Start with Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. His quote was... I kind of wish I had more from Danny in the book. I, I really should have. But his quote was... You can't be an outlaw when you're not wanted anymore. <laughs> that is perfect. And, uh, you know, it's it's just the perfect uh, summation of everything we've talked about, I think. You know, I also want to say some of the music that we've heard today is things that John cut for us, the title track, and, and they're fantastic. So you get to hear a little bit of him as a musician. He's a great musician. He's a great writer, too, so you should check him out. Thank you. Thank Let me ask you. you one thing, John. If you could tell our sure. listeners, is there anything new that you're working on or, or anything our listeners Ooh. should be looking out for? You can, go, you can go music yeah. or words, either way. 
I'm always at it, man. Especially, you know, during this time period, oddly enough, uh, you know, it's given me more time to write and more time to record. I just finished a 14 track album where I'm playing all the instruments myself, really improved my bass playing and my harmony singing a bit. Hey, I'm playing all the instruments on that version of Friend of the Devil. That's me doing everything. Oh, thank you. And I'm playing bass and mandolin and banjo on there. I don't know. I think I might have put a fiddle on there, too. And uh, um, anyway, uh, the new album is going to be up on Bandcamp under my name, John Cruth. And the new album is called Love Letters from the Lazaretto, as uh, we've all been uh, kind of in our own private Lazarettos for a, a while, over a year now. And I have a new book coming out on June 15th. It was supposed to come out last November. Um, It's called Hold On World. Hold On World. Hold On World is the story of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Plastic Ono Band. 50 years later, and, and how that those bodies of work, both John and Yoko's, yes, Yoko's, still endure to this day and, and are still revolutionary and still very uh, powerful. Backbeat Books published that. Please go to my Amazon page and you will see do I have five or six books out? I can't remember. <laughs> I'm always I'm always writing. I write for a number of different magazines regularly as well. Well, it's a fascinating talk, John. And if I can get through, I didn't know about your new book, but uh, I do have the Towns of Anzant on my list. Uh, I have a, obviously oh, wow. a stack of books because we do this twice a month, and I'm reading my you know what off. So uh, we'd love to have you back. But thank you so much for thank your time. You. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 